Are you self-employed and looking to get a home loan? Do you want to buy a property with your super fund? Or has your mortgage application been knocked back and you need a solution? At Better Mortgage Management, we specialize in solutions for home and investment loan borrowers. With over 50 loan products and 23 years lending experience, we have the flexibility and expertise to help you achieve your property dreams. Call us at 1300 857 275 to discuss how we can help you. This podcast is brought to you by Better Mortgage Management. Welcome to Season 2 of Cancer Culture Podcast. This podcast is not just about cancer. It's about the people whose lives have been profoundly affected by it. Throughout this season, we will hear from individuals who have faced unimaginable challenges from the relentless battles against this disease to the heartbreaking losses, sincere, real stories that need to be heard. Cancer Culture is a place of refuge where we try to provide insight, empathy, and a space for authentic storytelling. This podcast isn't an easy one, and it's definitely not for everyone. It is filled with moments of sadness, reflection, and inspiration, but also highlights profound growth, connection, and hope. I'm Jackie Cowan, and I'm your host. I'm definitely not a medical practitioner, but a normal 27-year-old chick who survived the hardships of cancer. If cancer has touched your life in any way, whether you're a patient, a caregiver, or someone who has experienced the pain of losing a loved one, reach out to me, reach out to our guests, and let us be a source of strength and support for one another. With gratitude in our hearts and a shared commitment to understanding and compassion, Let us honour the incredible individuals who have chosen to share their stories throughout season one and two. Through cancer culture, we can attempt to navigate the complexities of cancer, celebrate the triumphs and stand in solidarity with those who face this disease with unwavering courage. You're listening to another episode of Cancer Culture. Today we're joined by someone who I actually interviewed on my radio show by Sarah Powell. How are you? I'm great, thank you. Thanks for having me. If it's okay, could you tell us a little bit about you and who you are? I'm Sarah. I'm the CEO of Pink Hope. I'm also a mum. I have two children, an almost 11-year-old and an almost (laughs) 16-year-old. Due to my own history of having cancer and also having a genetic mutation, my life has, for the last 15 years, has been a lot around that, but in a good way. I try and see the positives I've been involved with Pink Hope for many years and then took over as the CEO three years ago. A lot of my life and my weekends and my evenings are spent doing events and being involved in that community, but I absolutely love it. I couldn't be happier with what I do. I feel like I'm making a difference for families like mine. And I have a daughter that potentially has inherited this mutation and a son. So it's really important to me that this is the work that I'm doing. Outside of my job, I have a dog that I absolutely adore, a rescue dog called Lexi, and so lots of walks and fun with her. I love to travel. I do get to travel quite a bit with my job, which is fantastic. I've managed to go overseas three times since COVID, so I feel quite lucky. Wow. (laughs) Yeah, I know. Awesome. (laughs) I'm going to Madrid in October for, it's the biggest, it's called ESMO, biggest cancer sort of oncology conference in Europe which is pretty exciting, and another trip to plan to Bali next year. Travel is definitely up there on my my things that I love to do. 
Has that always been the case? I moved to Australia when I was 22 from the UK. And because of that, that I, I just did that flight back and forth to the UK so many times. And then when we had children, my in-laws live on the Gold Coast. So our children have just gotten planes from when they were babies. Um, you know, my, I think my daughter's been to the UK something crazy like seven times and she's wow. six. So, yeah, they're, they're very well travelled. It's just something that we always did. It just never, I never thought that would that we shouldn't travel with them. I never worried about doing it. It just becomes second nature. Absolutely. Yeah, seven times in 16 years. Wowee. Very I'm lucky. A little, little bit jealous. <laughs> so I want to have a chat about your cancer journey Now, as you said, probably the beginning of many things in terms of your career, a new chapter in your life, and you had breast cancer. Yeah. And so when did that take place? So I was diagnosed when I was 29 years old, and that was 2006. I was on holiday in Thailand. So I got married in 2003, and because all my family came out from the UK for the wedding, we didn't get a honeymoon and one thing and another, I think my sister got married in 2005. So we went back to the UK for that wedding. So in 2006, we were, my husband and my ex-husband and I were, were like, okay, we're having a holiday. We're having this honeymoon, if you want to call it that. So we went to Thailand. And while I was there, I was washing in the shower, washing under your armpits. And I was like, oh, there's a lump there. And because I'm so young and I don't have a family history of breast or ovarian cancer, I just thought can't be anything but it's really there's definitely a lump there finished the holiday went home went to the GP fortunately for me even though I was young and I don't have a family history she still sent me for an ultrasound and while I was having the ultrasound the sonographer said oh have you been sick recently because I'm seeing quite a few enlarged lymph nodes and I said nope haven't been sick I just got back from Thailand it never felt better mm. and so he said I think you should go back to your doctor so we went back to the GP and she said, okay, they, they want you to have a biopsy. And yes, yeah, so I went to a breast clinic. They did a biopsy and I went on my own because my my ex-husband was like, there's no way it's going to be anything. You're young. And, but it was quite late in the day. And I remember the person doing the biopsy said, just make an appointment to come back in tomorrow. And so I went back tomorrow again on my own and they said, yeah, sorry, you've got breast cancer. Holy 29. Yeah. So young. Yeah. That would have just turned your life completely upside down. Yeah. It's interesting. I, I think I didn't have children then. And when you're 29, I, anyway, my experience was that I felt I it didn't I didn't ever think about dying or I felt invincible. I was like, okay, this is really inconvenient and we'll just deal with it. I often think if it happened now, it would be such a completely different mindset to how I handled it at the time. Yeah, it was, but it was still, yeah, it was really shocking. So what did that time look like for you in terms of you were diagnosed and then what happened after that? So I think they asked me to come straight back the next day and have more scans, more ultrasounds. I think I had a mammogram. Then I went in and had CT bone scans because obviously they were looking for any spread of the cancer anywhere else in my body. I was booked straight in for surgery the following week, I believe. And when they did the surgery, and this was 17 years ago, I think I've just hit 17 years. They Back then there was a, 
relatively new procedure called a sentinel node biopsy. And it allowed me to avoid having a full lymph node clearance, which mm. obviously has ongoing effects like lymphedema and things like that. So they offered me this procedure where they just take out one lymph node, the sentinel one's kind of the main one. And if that doesn't have any cancer in it, they're like 95% sure it's not spread. And my tumor was small. It was 1.2 centimeters. So it was, they were confident it was an early cancer, but to do the lymph, the sentinel lymph node biopsy, they have to literally inject a tracer into your nipple and so after surgery, I had this kind of blue boob, basically. Mm. I kind of looked like a smurf or something. I don't know. But <laughs> that's weird. And, but when I came around for my surgery, they said that while the surgeon told me that while she was taking out the tumour, she did notice a couple of enlarged lymph nodes, which she removed as well. So the type of breast cancer I had is called triple negative, which just means it's not positive to estrogen, progesterone, or a sort of protein receptor called HER. And triple negative is often much more aggressive. It was a grade three, so that means it's growing really fast. And we could already see that a 1.2 centimeter tumor had already started to spread within lymph nodes within my breast. It wouldn't have been long, even a couple of months would have made quite a big difference, I think, to the treatment I needed and potentially my outcome. So I was very lucky I found it early. And I was lucky that it was really, it was underneath my armpit because such a small tumor perhaps if it was right in the middle underneath my nipple or something like that I'm not sure if I would have felt it as quickly yeah because I was not checking my breasts at that Mm. age and I don't think many people under 30 are checking their breasts I I feel incredibly lucky so yeah so had surgery and needed to start chemotherapy very quickly but we the concerns over my fertility were were discussed with me because of what chemotherapy can do. Mm-hmm. I went straight into an IVF clinic and we did a round. We my oncologist just said to me, you've got one shot at this, one round, and then we're starting chemo. And if you're familiar with IVF, generally if you've never had it before, they pitch the drugs they give you at a, an average level. Some people need more, some people need less. They don't want to give you too much because you can hyperstimulate, which is actually really dangerous as well and produce too many eggs. And unfortunately for me, I probably needed more. So I think I ended up with five embryos, which wasn't terrible, but obviously we were hoping for more. And then I started chemo, which I would say I tolerated reasonably well. The first lot just made me feel quite nauseous. And the second lot I had a different type did give me quite bad peripheral neuropathy. So that's when your hands and your feet go numb. And so that was a bit annoying. And I became quite neutropenic when I was having the second lot of chemo. So I had to have injections that stimulate your bone marrow to make more white blood cells. Mm -hmm. And I felt like I had really sore hips a lot. It was almost like I could feel my hips making more. It was that kind of constant bone ache. But overall tolerated it really well finished that I actually was due to have my very last chemo on my 30th birthday and I remember when I looked at the schedule and I just thought oh it doesn't matter and then the week before I rang my oncologist and I said I don't want to do that on my but I think I just wanted to get it done I didn't want to delay it but I ended up delaying it I had a big I ended up pushing out my 30th birthday party for two weeks so I could get through my last chemo and had a big party which was awesome And then I started radiation. So that was five weeks of radiation every day, which it's funny. You go every day and I actually forgot to go one day. Like it's just, it was so weird. I remember they called me and they're like, where are you? And I was like, oh, radiation. Um, How far into it were you at that point? 
I remember a couple of weeks like it's yeah blame key my brain I don't know <laughs> they weren't always at the same time as well they mixed it up so I just didn't I just was out somewhere and just maybe I just didn't want to go and I actually did okay with radiation I was quite tired but didn't burn too badly I didn't I see some people and it's just awful mm. what their skin goes through and when all that was finished and that was really confronting because when you've got triple negative breast cancer and back then there's no treatment after you have the standard generic chemotherapy and radiation so if you've got a hormone type positive a hormone positive cancer you will then have the choice of going on to like an a hormone blocker basically that can it's an ongoing drug that really does everything it can to prevent your cancer coming back there's there back then there was nothing like that for triple negative there, there are some new medications coming through for triple negative which is fantastic but back then there was nothing and I remember my very last radiotherapy appointment they just said okay that's it thanks bye and I just walked outside and just started to cry because I was like who's looking after me now you you feel some comfort when you're although it's no one wants to be in the system once you're in there you feel like you're being looked after so that was very confronting mm. and then um and this part of the story is always, I always have to think about how I'm going to word it. But basically, I was told that my fertility would be affected. And that's why I did all the IVF. And I found out a few weeks after I finished radiation that I was pregnant. Wow. <laughs> I don't like to say accident. I was probably careless because I was like, I didn't think I was ever going to have kids. <laughs> <laughs> it was actually a really nice ending to a pretty crap year if I'm honest and it also just meant the focus was then on me being pregnant and 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 looking forward to having a baby yeah wow (laughs) as a young female and you were newly married was having kids something that you wanted to do yeah absolutely Mm. and I do remember having chatting to my oncologist and saying look I am thinking about having children and he said, look, please just wait two years because your chance of a relapse in that two years with a triple negative grade three tumor is very high and I don't want to be treating you pregnant or with a young baby, so just wait. So when I found out I was pregnant, I honestly walked in his office like a teenager trying to tell their dad they're pregnant. That's how I felt. Like I was so embarrassed and so... (laughs) And I was like, I've got something to tell you I'm pregnant. And he just laughed and said, oh, we will deal with it. (laughs) Good stuff. (laughs) Oh, wow. I think it just stopped me thinking about it too much, to be honest. I don't, it was definitely not negative at all. I found it quite a positive experience and just allowed me to move on. The focus wasn't about me having cancer anymore. It was about me being pregnant there was no, my oncologist referred me to a particular obstetrician and who he wanted to look after me. But she was like, look, there's, I, I can't see there's going to be any problems with this pregnancy. And there wasn't, I had a very straightforward pregnancy. I did get really bad pelvic instability, probably in the last couple of weeks of the pregnancy that carried on for the first month. So I was on crutches for a while, but that can happen to anyone. That, that's definitely nothing to do with my cancer, I believe. And yeah, I just, breezed through it got back to the gym I actually I think I was like fittest and healthiest I'd been in a long time I just was ready to take on life (laughs) how amazing that is so that is beautiful like a beautiful ending to that part yeah so I guess from here what did that look like when my daughter was six months old 
around six months old, I did that thing you're not supposed to do and I was doctor Googling because I just wasn't comfortable with getting breast cancer at 29. Even now, only 5% of breast cancers are women are under 30. And what I did read is younger women who get breast cancer younger often have genetic mutations like BRCA, BRCA1, BRCA2, which was made famous by Angelina Jolie. And I'm very grateful to her because now I don't have to explain it to people. I just Mm -hmm. have that thing that Angelina Jolie has. That's like me with Delta Goodrum. Yeah, it's, yeah. yeah it's, it helps. Yeah. I used to say to people, if I had to share anything with Angelina, I was hoping it'd be Brad and not Bracker, but never. <laughs> <laughs> but I had it first. So anyway. yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, so I, I did a bit of reading about that, but what stuck out to me, because all the way through my treatment, every doctor said to me, do you have a family history? You're very young. And I said, no, I don't have anyone in my family. I don't know anyone with breast or ovarian cancer. But what I did read about is having Jewish ancestry and particularly what's known as Ashkenazi Jewish ancestry, which just means Eastern Europe. And my dad's family are Jewish from Lithuania. Wow. And my dad's family are quite unusual. So his brother and sister never had their own children. My dad's sister died very young of MS and his brother married someone who already had children. I'm the first female for it to show in. Yeah, so it turns out I do have a BRCA1 mutation. I actually called up Peter Mack in Melbourne and said, look, I just, I got triple ne-. And triple negative breast cancer is often found with women that have a BRCA mutation. And as soon as I said triple negative, 29, Jewish ancestry, they were just like, yep, red flags come in and have testing. And so this was 2007-ish. And back then they said it will take four months to get your result. So... Mm-hmm off you go but they called me at the two month mark and said can you come in and have a chat and I just thought oh that's not good <laughs> if they're calling me early they've obviously found it and yeah so it turns out I have a BRCA1 mutation and for me at that point in my life I found that so much harder to deal with than being told I had cancer because when you I'm a terrible decision maker and when you have cancer they you're told basically this is what we're going to do you're going to have this treatment and and you get to the end of your treatment and if you're as lucky as me, you get to 17 years and it's, that's what happens. And it ends with you. The cancer stops with you. But when you have a hereditary mutation, there are a lot of decisions to make and big decisions, life-changing decisions. Yeah. So it's this cycle. It, it just doesn't end. Then I was holding this baby thinking she may have got inherited this from me. And I think someone said to me the other day, of all the things you want to pass on to your children, it's not this. It's just not something you you want to do. And it's funny because my mum, when I was diagnosed with breast cancer, she totally blames herself. I'm, I'm, what did I do? You were the only one I breastfed. I don't understand it. What did I do that you would get cancer so young? But then when we worked out, my, my dad had passed away when I was very young, but when we worked out that it was from my dad's side of the family, it was almost like my mum was like, okay, good, there's nothing to do with oh. yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, Blame him. So, yeah, so I had this mutation and I had all these decisions to make because I only had a lumpectomy when I had my cancer because I had a small tumour that was the right management of it. But now they were saying to me, your risk of breast cancer was 80 to 90%. It was almost like I was always going to get breast cancer in my lifetime. And I said, well, that's okay, because I've done that tick. And they said, no, and then it'll keep coming back. Like they just said, really, the only way you can reduce your risk as much as possible is a mastectomy. And then there's the ovarian cancer risk, which is around 40 to 60% lifetime. 
However, ovarian cancer has no screening. There is no mm. live screening method for ovarian cancer. Um, people often think that your pap smear is, but it's not, that's for cervical cancer. And ovarian cancer has very poor survival rates, sits around about 50% at the moment compared to breast cancer, which is up in 90%. Mm. And I think 75% of people with ovarian cancer will relapse. So it's a scary cancer. But the thing about ovarian cancer is they know that the risk doesn't really start to about start until about 35, 40 years old. So I didn't have to rush into that decision. I could think about having more kids, but the mastectomy was one they said you might want to start thinking about. And so I went away and I just thought, oh, look, I'll, I was being watched every six months. I was having my checkups. And I think about six months later, I went for a checkup and they said, oh, there's a little lump here. We're going to have to do a biopsy. And I remember just thinking, I, and of course, these things always happen on a Friday. So you've got to oh. wait the whole weekend, yeah, that scansiety, that whole, <laughs> and I spent the whole weekend freaking out. Think, and I just thought to myself, what am I doing? I'm just waiting to get cancer again. I can't live like this. Yeah. So that lump they found was benign and it was all good, but it prompted me to then book in and have a mastectomy. Look, it, it did take a while because I feel like, I think I had my mastectomy in 2009 because it just took ages to organize. And, you know, I tried to do it in the public system because it is really expensive and it just kept getting canceled and I just couldn't live like that either. So I ended up getting out the credit card and saying, oh, this is important. And so, yeah, I had my mastectomy, but annoyingly, had I had genetic testing at the time, I would have had a mastectomy at the time of my cancer diagnosis and I wouldn't have had radiation. Because I had radiation, it made my reconstruction options quite limited because radiation damages your chest wall internally and because my with re breast reconstruction you can go flat or you can have implants or you can use your own tissue so like your tummy I wasn't a candidate for a tissue reconstruction so it was either go flat or implants and I wasn't ready to be flat so on the sides where I'd had radiation I had to take my lap muscle out of my back and they it's actually really clever they just move it around and put it on your chest and so yeah so I have part of my breast is my back which is weird and I've got this huge scar on my back and the surgeon said to me the only thing you won't be able to do is rock climbing because I can't really pull myself up mm. I can't do monkey bars and things like that but not a big deal <laughs> in the grand scheme of things no rock climbing for you <laughs> no rock climbing yeah <laughs> yeah so I did that and yeah, it was huge it was big surgery I was in hospital for a week in surgery for about five hours it's pretty full-on but no regrets taking away that some of that fear. I'd like to say I don't. I still used to worry. I still have quite bad health anxiety. If I find anything, any lump on my body, I auto automatically think the worst. But it definitely took away that that fear. Yeah. And I think a lot of people that listen to this podcast also have that same anxiety associated with reoccurrence so when you're high risk you are eligible for medicare funded mris so that's the gold standard however that won't stop you getting cancer it'll just help you detect it as early as possible so yeah it, for me i didn't want to have to live through that every six months or every 12 months of course and so what does that look like now in terms of do you still get checkups so at 10 years, I was discharged from Peter Mac. They said, well done and good luck. Look, with breast cancer, generally speaking, there's always outliers, but triple negative breast cancer will, if it's going to 
spread, metastasize, it's likely to happen in the first five years, whereas a hormone type breast cancer can be 10 plus years, people, it can metastasize, it can hide away and then suddenly it's in your liver or somewhere else. 10 years, they were pretty happy to send me on my way. Because I've got breast implants, there's varying opinions on whether I should have regular ultrasounds. It's interesting, last year, I, or it was actually the year before last, my implants were getting old and you may or may not have heard about a very rare type of lymphoma that is caused by breast implants. Okay. It seems ironic for someone that's had a reconstruction that they do that to prevent cancer and there's a risk of a cancer and it is rare. However, the implants that I had were known to be one of the worst for causing this type of cancer. So your risk could have been anything from one in 2000 to one in 20,000, depending on which kind of implant you have. And it was textured implants, which back when I had mine, were used quite a bit because I had smooth implants initially, but I could see lots of rippling on my chest. So the texture implants helped with that basically. And lots of surgeons used them at the time, lots of plastic surgeons. So I knew that mine were not great. And the TGA in Australia have banned pretty much all textured implants in Australia now because of this lymphoma. And look, it is super rare and Found early, it's very treatable, but still it's cancer. And so I went to see a plastic surgeon and said, look, I want to change my implants. And part of me was like, I'm going to have to do this every 10 years. Maybe it's, and I, we discussed some options for using my own tissue because that to me is a much better option. You don't, it, you put on weight, it puts some weight, you lose weight, whereas implants, and they're just, they're cold and they're hard and they, they look okay in clothes, but they're not very natural. And yeah. And I don't have enough tummy fat. I'm a pear-shaped person. So I said, I've got plenty of bum and thigh. Let's, can we look at that? And, and so we did, I did speak to a surgeon about using my thighs to reconstruct my breast, but she caught me out of it. It's pretty brutal and it, huge recovery, huge scarring. And in the end, I said, okay, we'll just do implants. And who knows, in 10 years, I might be ready to go flat. Mm. But I, I just separated at this point and... I wasn't quite brave enough <laughs> to um, go back in, out into the dating world eventually and having that sort of difference with my body um, and yeah. confidence. And regardless of what you would or didn't decide to do, it's a massive change to your body, what you look like. This is our identity. I chose to have my implants changed over and... I just thought I'd wait a few months, get through, I think it was about September. And I said, look, let's wait till February, get through school holidays. Kids will be back at school. And these plastic surgeons said, look, why don't you go and have an ultrasound? You haven't had one for a while. And so I did an ultrasound and the ultrasound said, oh, you've got a potential rupture in your left one. So the plastic surgeon said, okay, let's do an MRI. It's like the gold standard of scanning. And I did a breast MRI and it said, no, your implants are fine. So she said, look, okay, everything's great. We don't need to rush. When she, so this was March last year. Actually, I think I had it booked for Feb and then we went into that code brown thing in Victoria. So there was all elective Mm. surgery got delayed. So I finally got back in in March and when she took my implant out, my left one was ruptured. Timing was good. Look, it it was, I think what they call intracapsular. So it wasn't leaking all over my body or anything terrible. It did result in a little bit more kind of 
work is what they have to do because I ended up in hospital for another couple of days and had to go home with a drain on that side but overall really glad that I've changed them over however about four weeks ago I was on a girls weekend it was Christmas in July and down the coast and one of my there was a friend there oh look this is going to sound awful but my friends always can I see your boobs? Like people are really fascinated and I'm just like, fine, just have a look. And it's just, that does not sound awful. What's <laughs> what friends are for, crazy. right? <laughs> it's like showing someone my leg, honestly. I'm so detached in some ways. Anyway, I put, it's really weird how this whole thing played out, but I pulled my shirt up and my friend goes, what's wrong with that one? It's so big. And I was like, and I look and it was massive. It like swollen up so significantly. And I just went, oh, I hadn't really notice so anyway then the next day I woke up and I felt dreadful so it got to Monday and I called my plastic surgeon and of course she was on holiday this always happens it was school holidays and so she but they in her office they said send us an email some photos and she they emailed them to her overseas and she emailed straight back and she said get to your doctor and get some antibiotics because it looks like an infection and go and see a surgeon she works with so I drove so I, I drove from literally one side of Melbourne to the other to this other surgeon, and she took she literally took one look and she goes, "I'm admitting you to hospital right now." <laughs> I was like, "Hold on a minute!" I was like, "I've got kids and a dog." I was like, I, "I don't have any stuff." And she said, "Okay, you have to drive home and drive." She said, "You need to come in like tonight." I think I spent about four hours in my car that day, and went straight on IV antibiotics for three days, and they aspirated the fluid around it. And did a full bacterial culture, which didn't show anything, but that also happens apparently. And yeah, so really, the so the upshot of it all is they don't know why it happened. It's rare, but it can happen. Mm. Unusual. It's not like a post-surgery infection because my surgery was 16, 17 months ago. So yeah, a bit of a weird one. And it actually, I was in hospital just going, that's it, take him out. I don't want I don't want this. I was having those moments. And then I started to think about maybe I do have this rare lymphoma. I was like going through all these crazy scenarios, but I ended up seeing a breast surgeon and talked it through. And we did a full breast MRI again that showed that there was nothing, sinister, nothing they were concerned about. And the breast surgeon's been really good. She's following me up every few weeks and we're just keeping an eye on it. Awesome. It's good that you've got good people around you who are thorough. What a roller coaster. Yeah. (laughs) I'm so fascinated because you're the first person that I've interviewed that's been open about this. And uh, yeah, very interesting. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm glad that everything is okay now. Thank you. Obviously, cancer changes people's lives in many different ways. What did that look like in terms of motherhood? And and I know that's got many different layers to it. It just gave me another focus. However, I had my mastectomy, my big, I call it my big surgery, when Michaela was 18 months old. I think she was about two and a half. Yeah, it was a little bit, yeah, it was probably a good two years from when, yeah, I started the whole test, genetic testing through to actually getting surgery. And that was hard because she was so little. But I think what was hard is I knew I I wanted to have another baby Mm. and I knew that initially I thought my fertility was going to be affected and I was like, I got pregnant with Michaela easily. It'll just happen again. So I just thought we had a lot of time and I needed that recovery time from my surgery before we started thinking about having another baby. 
And so I think I gave it about a year. So yeah, she was probably about three and a half. And then we started trying and I just wasn't getting pregnant. And this went on for over a year. So we went to see IVF, went back to the IVF clinic and they said, you've got these embryos. Why don't we give them a go? So we went through all the IVF and they were pumping me full of drugs, which my cancer team were happy with, okay with me to do. As I had triple negative breast cancer, it's less concern having hormones and all of that kind of thing in your body. And so we, we went in for the, to put the embryo in the implantation. And so these five embryos are sitting in the freezer, they're on ice and they have to, I always say defrost, but it's the wrong word. I think they thaw them. And they... <laughs> <laughs> either way, <laughs> just thawing and defrosting. And... <laughs> um, yeah. And the first two that they thought didn't survive, I think perhaps age and that kind of thing. So the third one did, but we ended up using three of the five basically in one go. And I found out, I think it was Christmas Eve that I it didn't take. And I'm just thinking, oh, I just don't think I'm, it's just not going to happen. And it's quite dejected. And then I... <clears throat> I remember saying to my ex, that's it. We're going to have sex every day. We're just going to go for it because <laughs> this is it. I'm... This is and the time. <laughs> this is it. We're just, I was like, I'm, what else can we do? And, yeah, I found out in January that I was pregnant naturally. So I really do put it down to that a lot of the drugs and all this. I think they were preparing my body for the pregnancy. But, yeah, I just think both my children are miracles. I really, when you think about how they were conceived. And my ex actually said to me, he was but he is a very positive person, but he said, I, I didn't want to say this to you at the time, but he said the way the doctors were talking to us at the IVF clinic, he said, I really thought you were never going to get pregnant, but we were trying to remain positive. But, but they did say to me, we wouldn't go through any more IVF now because I did some tests on my ovaries and my eggs. And they basically said, you, you've just got no egg reserves left now. There would be a waste of time for you to try and create more embryos. And so really, yeah, we were getting down to the wire on whether it was going to happen. But yeah, so my, so I've got about almost five years between my kids, which probably wasn't quite the plan, but anyway, it is what it is. Yeah. Um, yeah. There so you go, I'm... listeners. If you are <laughs> get pregnant, that's the answer. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. I guess I wanted to talk about and feel free to, you don't have to answer this question because it is quite raw, but having a daughter who is almost 16 years of age and having your past and your relationship with cancer how does that make you feel it's it is really tough and we get a lot of questions about this at pink hope people asking how do you talk to your children about knowing that they're potentially at risk of having a mutation and there's no right or wrong answer and there's no one answer either it, your children you know what kind of child whether if they have high anxiety or so there's lots of different things you need to consider my daughter is has often asked me through the, so I did a lot of fundraising for Pink Hope so it was always she was always very aware of the charity and she would always help out I organized the fun run for six years so she was always very involved and therefore we did talk about it a lot and you just have to use talk about it in an age appropriate way so as she's got older so she at almost 16 she's fully aware that she may have inherited my genetics or she may have inherited her dad when it comes to this gene. And I, 
they in Australia, and I think it's pretty the same all over the world. But it's not quite illegal, but it's they family cancer clinics won't test children because it's not an early onset disease. We, there's no benefit of a 12 year old knowing that they've got this mutation, and it's a pretty heavy weight to carry. On top of that, in Australia, we haven't outlawed insurance discrimination against people that have genetic mutations. It's a, a real passion of ours at the moment. To there's it's going up in Senate in, in September, and mm-hmm. to try and get this changed. There was a moratorium in place. Insurance companies would give you up. So I only have $500,000 of life insurance because that's all I can get because of my mutation. So there are definitely some implications around genetic testing and things you need to think about before you do it. It shouldn't be. And it actually puts people off having genetic testing. They're choosing the fact that they can't get life insurance against information that could potentially save their lives. It's it's outrageous. but It's so complex. It really is. And it's just the gift that keeps on giving with oh, yeah. genetic cancers. And... So there's a lot to consider. So really 18 is when she could have testing. However, 18 is still very young. I think it's a lot of, it's a big weight to carry on your shoulders. And my preference will be to put her off a couple more years. However, if she, if it's causing her anxiety, if she just wants to know, then we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. Mm-hmm. And family cancer clinics are amazing. They have trained genetic counsellors that are really good at counselling. It's not like you just go in and do a blood test. You really have to spend some time talking through how what happens if you are and what you know if you're not and really understanding the implications and the options and things are changing all the time there's some really great studies happening at the moment where there's some drug options for people that have BRCA1 mutations that will prevent them getting breast cancer and they're still in the trial phase but I think for breast cancer there's some great options coming through unfortunately ovarian cancer doesn't seem to there's just no early detection test or there's just there's nothing there. So really the only option is to remove your ovaries. Yeah, it is very vague, isn't it? Unfortunately, you have to find a healthcare professional that understands your condition and therefore understands the risks you're at. But it's not fair that you have to do that for yourself. And it makes me, because I'm, I'm I can advocate for my own health because of my job and my experience, but it's what about the people that can't? It, you know, it's a very, it's not equitable really the system shouldn't be like that we could go on for days couldn't we We (laughs) (laughs) Um, which brings me to pink hope so we haven't really had a chance to talk about that yet but how did you get involved in pink hope because I found the having a genetic mutation that part of what my experience so much harder to deal with because I didn't reach out to any organisations when I had breast cancer. I, I didn't feel, I felt supported by my friends. I felt comfortable. I was okay. But once I found out about the genetic mutation, I was not okay. And so I Googled and I found Pink Hope. And this was 16 years ago and 15, 15 years ago, I think. And so Pink Hope was founded by Crystal Bada and her family have faced generations and generations of women with breast and ovarian cancer and they have the BRCA1 mutation and Crystal chose at 25 to have a prophylactic mastectomy which was pretty um, pretty radical back then because we're it's about 15 years ago and but she was adamant she just didn't want to go the same path as her mom and her grandma and her great-grandma and actually when they took her breast tissue out they found what they class as those kind of 
cells starting to change. It was fine, but she'd done it at the right time. And she realised when she was in hospital that there's no, there was no organisation for people that are trying to prevent getting cancer or reduce their risk. So if you get diagnosed with cancer and breast cancer, there's lots of organisations that will support you. But she was trying to prevent getting cancer, which is confronting and has its own challenges. And there wasn't a charity that would support her or an organisation that would connect her with other women. So she started Pink Hope. And so back then, very small, very grassroots, was under the auspice of the National Breast Cancer Foundation. And it was, I don't know if you remember those old school forums where you just on, you log into this little website and, and I just got chatting to women. And there's one of the women I made friends with was still really good friends with today. So it, it was definitely life-changing for me. And it just helped me get through all those decisions and the surgery. And so I was really passionate about supporting Pink Hope as much as possible because those early years were really tough for Crystal in terms of funding. And then she went out on her own and 10 years ago made Pink Hope a standalone charity. And yeah, I started, I decided to, I had a personal trainer and she said, let's do a fun run. <laughs> and so, yeah, we did it for six years. We got a bunch of people in the park and we, we raised about $100,000 over the wow. years. So it was, and it was good fun. It was hard work. People still say to me, no, you're going to do your front run again. I'm like, no way. <laughs> when are we going to do that? So, but it was great. It was a nice community event in a beautiful part of Melbourne. And, yeah, it was a lot of fun. But through that, and also Pink Hope would often say, oh, could you speak at this event for us as a give you a story? Yeah, just did lots of stuff like that. And then, and I always said to Crystal, I want a job. Give me a job. But pre-COVID, she, that she's based in the Northern Beaches in Sydney, and it was a very Sydney-based charity. And then she called me, I think it was August 2020, and said, look, I'm ready to step down. Do you want to take over as the CEO? And I was like, yes. <laughs> but I wouldn't recommend taking over charity in the middle of COVID. <laughs> it was <laughs> hard. <laughs> but it's the silver lining of COVID. You can work anywhere. And like I said, my team now are located in Sydney, Melbourne and Canberra. So it's good. It's good because it... Although we always said we were a national organisation, having people in different places. I know it's not all of Australia, but at least we're a bit spread out. So, yeah, so Crystal's gone on to start her own health consultancy, still a very passionate advocate for hereditary cancer. But, yeah, so I got to take over and it's been three years now. And I worked in banking before this. <laughs> very different. And just making shareholders richer. And this is, I couldn't go back. I just... I'm probably a little bit poorer, but <laughs> a lot happier. <laughs> a lot happier. And you're helping people, which is beautiful. Yeah, it's nice. And it, it's also at least once a week, probably more, I'll get a phone call or an email from someone saying, I want to give you something, or I want to help, I want to do this. And it, it, it puts your faith back in humanity. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. And that is probably one of the most beautiful things about this entire experience is connection and yeah. being brought together through something really horrific and what people can do in really dark times is incredible yeah. for one another yeah yeah, yeah. so for our listeners i know what pink hope is and what you focus on but could you elaborate on that a little bit we're australia's 
a leading patient organisation that supports families that have hereditary cancer. So these are families that might have a very strong family history of, and it's mostly breast and ovarian, but as our understanding of genomics grows, we know that there are many more mutations or variations, as they're called now, that cause cancer. So BRCA1 and 2 were the ones that were known well about when I was diagnosed, but now there are many other mutations and they cause more than just breast and ovarian cancer, prostate cancer, pancreatic, there's stomach, bowel. So there's, but breast and ovarian is probably the cancers that your chances are probably the highest. They're the ones we tend to get more people coming to our organization that have in their family. And we provide support and connection. That's probably the biggest thing we do. We have online support groups. We have over 2,000 women in them. And it's a really lovely place where people really support and connect each other. It's got a really nice vibe. Obviously, we moderate them, but we hardly have to do it. We rarely have to do it in some groups. I don't know if you've been on any Facebook groups where they can get a little oh. bit heated and people's opinions, but ours just seem to run so nicely. And I think once you get create that culture, it because we, we, it's not about giving medical advice. We cannot do that, but it's about just supporting each other. And often it might just be someone saying, oh, I'm going into hospital. What's the best thing? And people will be like, oh, don't forget to take your extra long phone charger or your earplugs. It's that kind of stuff. Or, oh, my daughter's really struggling. What is anyone had any advice? And then we do face-to-face. We call them community catch-ups, which we try and do in different parts of Australia. So if we're already there doing an event or something like that we'll try and get maybe 10 to 15 women together who live in that area and just literally have a cup of tea and have a chat and it allows people to connect with each other and provide that peer support then we work in education and information so our website has a lot of information all evidence-based everything we put on our website peer review sorry doctor reviewed and that kind of thing we want to help people with that overwhelm and our website's 24-7. Someone's up in the middle of the night stressing about something. Hopefully they can find what they need on our website. And we also provide information in lots of different kind of mediums. So videos, webinars, blogs, podcasts. We try and, because some people want to listen, some want to read it. Everyone's different. Of course. And so that's, and then we've, I mean, our, our digital channels are amazing. Thanks to Crystal She was 25 when she founded the charity and she got straight into social media because that was her demographic, I guess, or what was interesting to her at the time. So for a small charity, we have over 60,000 people follow us across our platforms, which is huge for a small charity. And so incredibly important. And it's, it's a big responsibility and a privilege. And we have to, we want to make sure that we put good information out there. We, our, our brand voices and our the way we want to be with people is not to ram information down your throat. Like we, we're gentle, we're nurturing, we call ourselves your educated best friend. Like that's how we want to come across or not how we come across, but how we help people in that yeah. way. And, and we run a lot of sort of educational campaigns through the year, just focusing on different things. And then advocacy. And it, it's a part of what we do that is not very visual and I think but it probably takes the biggest amount of our time but we're working behind the scenes with government trying to change policy insurance discrimination we think I think oh like PBAC submission so when a drug that has been approved by the TGA it has to go through an approval process so that it can be listed on the PBS and therefore is funded so we support those submissions to try and get these drugs to patients quicker. It's all of those kind of things um, that we work hard with. And then we support a lot of research institutions. So we don't 
fund research, but we help support them by recruiting and getting patients involved to support their efforts. And patients are always happy to be involved in research because we all want to make sure that the next person that comes after us has a better experience or a different experience to us. Hmm. So if people that are listening to this podcast, if they think that they can benefit from Pink Hope, can they reach out to you guys? Yeah, Yeah, 100%. Absolutely. (laughs) It's all free. Our website is pinkhope.org.au. Um, if anyone wants to contact me directly and I'm always happy, like we are small enough that I literally talk to people on the phone. Like I'm, so I'm more than happy to do that. So my email is sarah at pinkhope.org.au. If you go to our website, there's a contact us form as well, which I look at. Like I said, we're a small organization. It makes me laugh. Sometimes people say, oh, can I, shall I call your assistant and (laughs) your (laughs) HR department, your IT department? I'm like, if that's me, I'll just change my hat. Um, (laughs) I'm always happy to chat to people because I am a patient at the end of the day. And, you know, this is my job, but I also get it. I often speak to women who are struggling with their surgery decision or menopause is probably a big topic at the moment because when you have your ovaries removed prophylactically you go through surgical menopause very different to natural menopause where your body gets that natural decline in estrogen it's like you just go wham see if you've cut it all off and yeah I did that at 38 and it's early menopause is rubbish Mm. (laughs) I can describe it I talk to a lot of women about that and managing it and of course there's varying opinions whether HRT is okay and it depends on your doctor and Everything, every doctor's got a different opinion. So yeah, we spend a lot of time talking to women about menopause at the moment. How does that go down in terms of working so closely with cancer all the time? And as we touched on before, having that anxiety associated with being sick again, is it tough for you at times? Yeah, it can be because sadly we have lost women in our community and you do take it really hard. You get to know them, you know, they, they, often they've been involved in our campaigns or projects so they and they often invite us into their lives and allow them to film them or photograph them and and write their stories and it's really hard we talked we had a planning session at the end of the year and we talked about looking after ourselves about our mental health because we are dealing with people that are having often having some really tough times and going through some pretty tough stuff I think we just, we're all very aware that we have to look out for each other and support each other where we can and take the time out when we need it. So yeah, it's, but it is hard. How many ladies do you work with or people, I should say, not specifically just ladies? We are all women. Funny enough, I don't get many men apply for jobs when we advertise. So (laughs) not that we would be against it by any means. They'd have to be comfortable though. Robin, our programs manager, she's hilarious. And she said, you know what, if I haven't said boobs or vagina by nine o'clock then I don't know what's happening with my day like it's really true I mean we comfortably or that's what we talk about all the time so you'd have to be fairly comfortable with that which I'm sure most men are or some men so yeah there are five of us in the team it makes me feel so nice inside that there are people like yourself and your crew of women that are doing this every day in order to help individuals going through this and I think you're incredibly brave for doing what you do on a day-to-day basis considering your history with cancer someone was asking me the other day what I'm most proud of in my time and I said my team like I because we have such an amazing culture and you're right like we 
all get on so well we and when we're together we laugh like we we just we make work fun and obviously there are times when it isn't fun due to the sort of nature of what we do we all are so passionate and you have to be careful about that too because Robin said to me the other day I've never cared so much about a job as I have this because it's personal and I said to her but you have to be careful of that because it is a job and you can't just because you're so passionate and it's your your family history and etc etc it's still a job and you still need to switch off at the weekend and so um my job is to make sure everyone has balance in their life as well (laughs) can you tell us more about how connecting with this specific community changed your perspective on your journey yeah it's interesting I suppose my I'm not sure if this is exactly answering your question but you know what I am very conscious of is that we are all different and the way we handle things is really different and there's no right or wrong. I feel like when I have my ovaries removed, I actually breeze through that as in the recovery, but I never say that to people because then if they don't, then they'll feel like this they failed or something like that. So if that makes sense, I just think that there's so many variables and also timing like we talked about, what stage are you at in your life can really play a part And a big thing that I find really fascinating is, so I am a knowledge is power person. So I, there's no way I wouldn't have found out about my, and had genetic testing. However, I see time and time again in families where one of the biggest struggles they have is other family members are like, I don't want to know, I'm not going to get tested, which is fine for themselves, but they might have children or so it's that this is the thing with a familial cancer. It affects everyone in the family and But interestingly, my brother has refused to have genetic testing, so I shouldn't really be surprised. He's not refusing. He's just doing that. Maybe I will one day. And I'm like, it's been 15 years, mate. Like, when are you going to do it? (laughs) But he has a daughter who's same age as my son, so she's 11. And I've said to him, when she turns 18, at that age, I will let her know that it's in the family and it will be up to her because it would be wrong of me not to share that information. Yeah, my sister was diagnosed with breast cancer during COVID and she doesn't have a BRCA mutation, so she was negative, and, but she was I mean, 52 at the time or something like that. She just is that one in seven and she had a hormonal, which is more common when you're a little bit older. And she had a really good experience considering she was in COVID, but it was disastrous really because they told her she would have to wait three months to have surgery and which is outside of all the guidelines. If you've got cancer, you should be treated within 30 days in the public yeah. system. But they just said, we have no anaesthetists. They're all in COVID wards. So we just don't have the surgery. Eventually she did. I think it ended up being about six weeks. But overall, she had a really good experience. <laughs> what are your hopes for individuals facing cancer and how organisations like Pink Hope can continue to make a difference? I think I actually have a lot of hope in the amount of research that is going into new for high-risk people so that these kind of prevention options like I was saying for breast cancer for for women that have BRCA mutations but also more options for medicines to treat people once they've had cancer and prevent their cancer coming back but also we're seeing in the last year there have been so many medicines going through the PBAC process so that's the process that gets listed on the PBS and funded for even a lot for metastatic women too and ideally and I feel like Miss Weld saying this I want a cure for cancer but um, (laughs) we can't cure metastatic cancer right so it's we just can't and 
of course that's the that is, that's the ideal but what metastatic cancer even you know, 15 years ago it was people just didn't live that long with it whereas now I've got a friend that's still alive 10 years later with metastatic cancer because there are such good options to you know almost treat it like a chronic illness for a period of time don't get me wrong they are metastatic and that's their stage four but I think that's the hope is that more and more of these options give people a longer but also better quality of life and I think that's what there's more of a focus on that the other thing that I'm seeing a real shift at the moment is we're going from a doctor-led relationship in the healthcare system to a patient-led how it always should have been but we all know that wasn't always the case and it's not going to happen overnight but there is definitely a big shift so when it comes to research when it comes to anything that so you know the healthcare system we are invited to so many consultations around changes because we're a patient advocacy group and I'm often asked to be involved in things because I wear two hats I'm a patient advocacy group but I'm also a patient so I'm loving seeing how much involvement patients are getting and getting their say. For too long, I think people have assumed what patients want and sometimes you're consulted at the last minute when really all the decisions have been made, so you tick a box. Now patients are really being listened to and it's good. I think we'll see a real shift in the next few years. If you can give any advice to anyone that is currently going through a diagnosis, what would that be? Yeah, it's so hard. I think we can all say don't Google and don't think about it, but that's just unrealistic. I think, and I'm going to really generalize here, but talking about a woman, we're really bad at asking for help. And I think that you need to take that help when it's offered to you. But also if I can switch it, often people will come to me and say, what do you, what advice do you give to carers or friends of someone going through a cancer diagnosis? And I always say, don't ask them, just do stuff. Like, because even just the having to say yes can be overwhelming to someone that's going through a cancer diagnosis. Just do it because people won't ask for that help. You've got, it's so individual. So, you know, you've got to, you need to be able to have that person you can talk to. And if for some people it is their family and friends, but others need someone completely separate. And I think that's why our online support groups do really well because mm. people can vent and they can say things and they can voice their concerns. That they might not be comfortable with their families because they don't want to worry their families. And I love that Facebook now has a feature where you can post anonymously. I feel like that's really opened things up for people where they're not, wouldn't have been comfortable before because they didn't want to put their name out there, which we totally get now. They can, if they just want to ask some questions or get involved. So you got to find that way of, because I think you you mentioned it before that it's about verbalizing it. When you keep it inside, you, you do need to recognize what you're feeling, label those feelings, all of that sort of anxiety type stuff. And also, again, I touched on this before, but everyone is different. Do not mm. listen to someone say, oh, when my friend had chemo, they did this or it doesn't matter. Like you are you and you'll recover and you'll do things in your own way. And geez, I, some of the things people do, and I don't let anyone tell you stories about someone they know with cancer and all of those things people can, I, I don't think people mean it. Like when I was having my mastectomy, my, a couple of my friends were, I think the only thing they could liken it to was a boob job. Yeah. I just a boob job and I was like, yeah, it's not really the same, but, but, I also just thought that's all they can 
envisage that's all that they can picture kind of thing so yeah they're probably the big things for me I it's just it's hard be kind to yourself is what I say um but also I've worked pretty much through and again so this is just me I'm not saying this is what everyone should do but for me it enables me to keep going and focus on just keeping my life as normal as possible you've got to decide what that is for you and do it and it's mm. going to be different for every person